Well, good morning. Uh, as Matt said, my name is Gabe Boyd. Uh, I currently serve as the director of Trail Students, uh, and it is a joy for me to get to be here with you all this morning and open God's Word. Uh, and so in doing that, let's turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 is where we will be this morning. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, this will not come as a surprise to any of the students in the rooms or any of the student leaders, but I'm going to tell a story. You better believe it. There's a story coming, all right? So just hold on for a second. Um, so a couple of years ago, um, I decided that it would be a good, a, a good idea to take two of my girls to Six Flags. Um, at that time, my oldest would have been 11. Hallie, my second born, would have been about eight-ish. And uh, I thought, man, this is the perfect age to like really introduce some sweet roller coaster rides. Right? Sounds like a good idea. Like, Huge on the dad points right here, right? So like I'm just, I'm just putting money in the bank on this situation. So we go and um, we start off pretty small, right? We start off with a mini mine train, right? Everybody's favorite. If you're a little kid, big kid, doesn't matter, mini mine train. As long as you can get your legs in there, that's, that's tough. But mini mine train, graduated to the, to the big mine train, right? That's super fun. Uh, and I felt like um, at that point we were ready to like actually, let's go, let's go. Not like, let's go Superman or Mr. Freeze, but like Judge Roy Scream, let's go, okay? Uh, I love the Judge Roy Scream. It's one of my first ones. I actually have a picture of us right before we got uh, onto the Judge Roy Scream. Um, <clears throat> so I had this really great idea is that Berkeley and Hallie would always sit together and I would always just sit by myself in the car. So we do the Judge Roy Scream. It's super fun. And then I'm like, it's time. It's shockwave time, baby. Let's go. <laughs> Shockwave is one of my favorites, uh, mainly because, uh, A, there's hardly ever a line for the shockwave. I mean, you just go and you just jump right in and you go. Uh, my second reason, the double loop-de-loop, -loop, right? I mean, like, there's just something about being on a roller coaster with your hands up and the centrifugal force of, go I don't know if that's the right phrase, I'm not a scientist, but like, back again with the science, I'm sorry. Uh, if you were here last week, you understand that joke. But here we go, upside down, like the force of trying to keep my hands up and just the challenge itself, is just, it's exhilarating to me. Um, so I, I think we're ready for the shockwave. So we jump in the cars, but for some reason on this particular um, ride, Berkeley, my oldest, decides that she wants to ride with me. So I've got to do all this consoling with my eight-year-old. Babe, it'll be fine. Like, you're just going to be one car in front of me. Don't worry about it. She's like, okay. So we finally get on the car. We choose the very last seats because those are the fastest, right? Have you heard this myth? I don't know if it's true or not. I just hear people say that all the time. So we tend to gravitate because there's usually not a line back there. There's always people in the front. I don't know why. who wants to do that. But so we get in the last cars. And we go up the first thing, and you know, on the shockwave, you kind of like do this bank off to the right, and then you go up and down and up and down. And right before the double loop-de-loop, -loop, there's, this, there's this really high elevation, and there's actually a checkpoint. Like, I don't know if you know this, and you wouldn't know this unless you had a story like mine, but there's a mechanical checkpoint at the top of this hill where basically, I don't know, I don't know if it's like the computers or what, but it checks to make sure everything's A-OK -okay on the roller coaster, all right? So I start to freak out a little bit whenever we hit this mechanical checkpoint and the whole thing goes, and we just stop on the top of a hill. And internally, I'm just kind of like, okay, I, I don't remember this on the shockwave, but um, this is a new addition maybe. Uh, but after about 30 seconds, um, I'm like, 
this isn't right. Like, and everybody's kind of grumbling on the cars. And so then I did what any good parent does is I get my phone out and I start taking pictures, right? And so I've actually got a picture of me in Berkeley. Um, she claims that these pictures, that that's not her actual emotions, <laughs> that she's not really feeling this. It was just kind of an act. Well, I'll let you decide. Uh, and then, again, you remember this great parenting decision. So here's Hallie. Um, literally, I mean, after about a minute and a half, she's like, Dad, why are we not moving? I'm just like, babe, I don't know. I don't know why we're not moving. But she's like reaching through the car like, please save me. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what's happening right now, honestly. Um, and so, uh, so while I'm up there and I'm trying to console my kids and get everything back under control, uh, I look off to the right. So we have a picture. If you look off to the right and you're familiar with the shockwave, uh, that just kind of gives you an idea of kind of how high we were. Okay, This is not like a low point of the ride. It's a fairly high point of the ride. And so, uh, actually, you can't see it, but if you look down from where we were at, uh, there's kind of that marshy lagoon area, you know? And I'm thinking in my brain, like, okay, so if things go bad and we fall off the car, off the track to the right be a splash landing, we should be fine. Like, no worries there. So everybody lean this way if something goes wrong, okay? But then I look to the left. Is any, what is it? I-30, okay? So like, it, <laughs> if things go wrong and we go this way, then um, <laughs> there's tr trouble on the horizon that way, right? So now even more of an emphasis. Um, and so now that I've got my bearings about exactly our emergency plan, uh, should something go wrong, um, after about 15 to 20 minutes, um, I'm kind of starting to get a little anxiety because uh, I'm like, I'm not real sure what's happening. Uh, and so until then, I had been okay, and then I turned around and took another picture. And I just want to land on this picture for just a second because it just kind of gives you an idea of kind of like where we're at. Um, and so what you'll see, and the thing I want us to hone in on, and the reason that I'm telling you this story actually, uh, is that... Most roller coasters have this, this initial uphill climb that you have to do, right? Uh, now, I know some of you are going to be like, well, what about Mr. Freeze? It just shoots you out at you know, 100 miles an hour. But most roller coasters have this uphill climb, right? And that uphill climb is so important because while it might be slow and jerky the whole time up, right, and the anxiety is building within your gut of, like, what's coming next, what I've found is that the uphill climb, although um, not our favorite part, is absolutely necessary to the joy of the rest of the ride. Like it's absolutely, you've got to endure the uphill climb before you can enjoy the thrill of the rest of the ride. And today as we look at Matthew 27, we're going to be in the uphill climb. But the way I've tried to explain it to people is like, they're like, hey, what are you preaching on Sunday? And I'm like, um, you know that part of the Passion of the Christ that everybody wants to like lower their heads or turn their eyes away from? That part. That, that's the part. And they're like, oh, wow. And I'm like, but here's the deal is we have to look. Like, like we have to look at Matthew 27. We can't not look at Matthew 27 lest we miss the joy and the thrill of the weeks to come as we get into Easter. So just let me frame our time with, I know this is hard. Trust me, for two weeks I've been weeping over this passage multiple times. I know that this is hard. But we have to get into this. 
Because after that is where the joy lies. Pray with me. Jesus, as we open your word, Father, I pray that you would help our eyes to be open to the reality of the truths within this text. And that as we learn from these realities, God, would you turn our hearts back to your son, Jesus, who would pay the ultimate price for what we deserved. God, help us. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. So Matthew 27, we're going to cover a huge chunk. We're going to go verses 1 all the way to 31. And every which way that I tried to structure this sermon, I tried to keep from reading all of it, but we're reading all of it, all right? Because here's where I land. is like the most important words that could be said today are these words right here in these 31 verses. There's nothing, no great story, there's no commentary that I can provide you that is going to be for us more powerful than these 31 verses. And so I'm, just, I'm not going to ask you to stand, just sit back and, I'm, and follow along with me as I read Matthew 27, verses 1 through 31. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they have testified against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas And to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two of you do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? 
What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen. So just to help us shape our time a little bit again today, um, I just want to pick out three particular groups of people. So as we look at the trials of Jesus, I want us to look at three different people within this narrative here. And I just want to look at how they responded to Jesus in these last hours of his life. Like what were the choices that they made and then what might we learn from them in light of that? The first will be the betrayer, Judas. I want us to take a really hard look at the choices that Judas made as it pertains to our Savior. The second will be the governor, Pilate. What are the things that we see within the story of Pilate and what he did uh, with his turn uh, in the trial of Jesus? And then the last, we'll look at the soldiers. How did they behave? How did they respond to Jesus in these last hours of his life? So if you look back to verse 1, I just want to, by way of kind of refreshing our memories from how we got to this place, you'll notice the first couple of words say, when morning came. So, so we've, we've graduated into a new day. If you'll remember the night before, Jesus has been arrested uh, by the, the elders and the chief priests. Uh, and they've actually held what at that time would have been an illegal nighttime trial where they've gathered all their witnesses and started to build their case against Jesus. But they knew that that case was not going to stick because that that trial that they had held was illegal. So they decided, hey, uh, let's make sure that we meet again officially in the morning just to ratify the decision that we had made that Jesus has to die. And so that's where we find ourselves in verse 1 and 2, that that they know that they have decided that Jesus is going to die, but that they can't actually do that. You see, the, the sentencing part of their trial series has been stripped of them by the Roman government, that they actually now need to take Jesus to the Roman authorities and have them sign off on what they've decided to do with Jesus. And so you can imagine the case and the witnesses and the allegations that they're trying to build against Jesus in this moment. So in verse 3 through 10, let's take a look at Judas. And I think that this is such an interesting place for them to, for Matthew to fit this story, this last scene that we see of Judas's life. 
So a lot of commentaries will, will, will tell you that um, this is actually happening as Jesus is being taken, bound, to the Roman authorities. And it makes me think that maybe Judas was actually standing around as the, the, the illegal nighttime trial and even this day-morning trial was happening. He's actually standing around taking in everything that they're saying about Jesus. And I think it's super interesting if you'll look with me in verse 3 where it says that when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, that means he's going to die, and that he was a big part, the, the, eye, the chief eyewitness into, the per, into this sentencing of Jesus, that Judas changed his mind. I just felt like that was very interesting phrasing for Matthew to use, that Judas changed his mind. And I think if we continue to read, we see that, man, this changing of his mind actually, it, you begin to feel the guilt and remorse that Judas has for the decisions that he's made to get him to this point. That it's finally sinking in, I've just betrayed Jesus. To the point of, he feels so guilty, he goes back and he, and he tries to confess back to the chief priests and the elders what he's done. And I think it's very interesting to note this, is that as the chief eyewitness to their case, a man who had walked with Jesus for three years, who ought to have all the dirt on Jesus, should there be any shortcoming in his life. But here he stands in a moment where he could absolutely throw Jesus under the bus. And all he has to say is, I've betrayed innocent blood. There, there is no mistake about it that Jesus is absolutely sinless. And Judas has nothing else to say. But this is an innocent man. And so now the weight of his guilt, the remorse that he's feeling, he tries to give the money back as though he could undo what he's already done. But see, I think it was Judas's refusal of heart change that led him to trying to bear the weight of his sins that ultimately led to him hanging himself. Like the weight of the sins that he had committed, he simply could not stand anymore to the point of he took his own life. Now, I, I think that what we need to see here is that Judas's, like the remorse he felt, it was real, clearly. But I think we need to be really careful and make a clear distinction that there's a difference between remorse and repentance. There's a very clear distinction. In fact, uh, I was reading a commentary from Michael Green, and he says it this way, that, my, that remorse is destructive. That guilt that you feel, the remorse, it's destructive. But repentance is creative. And so Judas went to destruction but Peter, you remember Peter from last week? But Peter became a new man whom Christ could trust and rely on. That if you remember, even last week we see Peter deny Jesus, right? And he leaves, and what does he do? He weeps bitterly. I've got to believe he's just begging the Father to forgive him for what he's done. But Judas, Judas doesn't approach the Father. He doesn't approach Jesus looking to turn from his sins. He tries to undo them himself. He puts all this weight on himself to undo what he's done wrong, but he simply finds that he can't do it and that there's no relief, so he takes his own life. See, this is the difference between a head knowledge of Christ and a heart knowledge 
of Christ. We see a clear distinction of this in in the difference between Peter and Judas. One had a heart change, Peter, and one simply a head change, Judas, or a change of mind. I think this is why in the book of James, James speaks so frankly against a faith that is simply cognitive belief of Jesus. You see, a change of heart means that we're altogether new. New creation's been made brand new. But a change of mind just simply means that we think differently, but we don't act any differently. And I think that this leaves us very confused because we find ourselves in the same sin patterns that we've always been in, and we feel the guilt and the shame of these things. And it's simply a weight that you, friend, as a believer, were not meant to carry. You're not meant to carry that weight. It's why Jesus came. It's why he did what he did. So if you're walking around, brothers and sisters, with the weight of your sin, whether it's a sin you committed this morning or one that happened 10 years ago, listen, it does not matter. Please stop carrying that weight. It's not why Jesus came. It's not why he died. He came that you might be forgiven, that you don't have to carry the weight of your sins. He's done it for you, all of them. All the weight is on his shoulders. We'll see more of that as we continue. But let's look at Pilate. Verses 11 through 26, we're going to see the story of Pilate and Jesus' Roman trial. So Jesus has been turned over now to the Romans. Uh, The Jewish leaders are intent on pleading their case against Jesus in hopes that Pilate will do exactly what they want with him, which is sentence him to death. I think it's interesting that in verse 11 that it says that now Jesus stood before Pilate and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So even within this question, like, I just see just a lot of like skepticism within Pilate. Like, are you, are you really the king of the Jews? Because if you are, I'm really confused as to why you're here. Why a bunch of Jewish people just brought you in front of me? So he's already kind of got this like, this gut feeling that something's not right. Something's not going right here. And so Jesus, this one time, just simply says, as, looks at him and says, yes. Yes, I am. It is as you say. I am king of the Jews. But in verse 12, you see that as soon as those words are uttered out of the mouth of Jesus, the elders and the chief priests, like a pack of wild dogs, jump on him. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, they're immediately like all those accusations that they had thought of the night before. They're all coming out in front of Pilate. They're just spewing all of these things out and accusing him of everything. And Pilate's hearing all this. And he looks at Jesus and he says, do you not hear what they're saying about you? Like, don't you hear what they're saying? And it says that Jesus said nothing. And that it amazed Pilate, as I'm reading this this week, like, I'm amazed. Have you ever been talked bad about? Slandered? Gossiped about? Has anybody said anything about you that's simply untrue? Has this happened to anybody? Of course it has. It's happened to all of us. And in those moments, man, don't we just want to give into the flesh and just, just unload what is true, what is right? But Jesus, like, fully committed 
to the Father's plan, fully obedient to his will, stays silent in front of a man. Here's the deal. I think that that Pilate was ready to listen to whatever Jesus would say. I don't know this for sure, but it's almost like he's begging him to speak up. I'll let you go. But he doesn't say anything in his own defense, even though everything spoken out against him is absolutely false. It's incredible. And Pilate is amazed. If you continue on, if we continue on to verse 18, it even shows us that Pilate, he, he's up. Like, like he's wise to the game that the Jewish leaders are up to. I mean, it says right there, it says that for he knew, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up to him. (laughs) Like like he knew it. And even in verses uh, 19, he's warned by his wife. This is the only place in the Gospels where we're going to see Pilate actually receive this warning. And she just says, don't have anything to do with this guy. I mean, over and over and over again, as Pilate walks and toes this line of temptation that he's going to face, over and over again, he's warned, don't do it, don't do it, stay away, run away, get out of this situation. But he can't. So what makes a man like Pilate, with this authority, acting as the judge, holding the fate of one man in his hands, what makes him make the decisions that he's about to make? I think he's scared. I think it's fear that causes Pilate to do what he does next. What's he scared of? Well, it's easy. The Bible tells us that a riot was beginning to break out. He's scared that he's going to lose control of the people that he's supposed to oversee. And when he does, he's going to lose his position, he's going to lose his power, and he's going to become a nobody. That everything will be taken from him. He will lose everything. He'll go from the top of the food chain to the bottom of the food chain real quick. And he's scared. But I think think that we see a lot of this just within our own culture today too, don't we? That people often will choose things out of fear instead of what they know to be right. Look, I could list a million different scenarios where this is true, but here's what I want to encourage us with is, what will it cost you to choose Jesus every single day? Maybe that's a question we need to wrestle with every morning. What will it cost me, just so I'm not surprised, what's it going to cost me today to follow Jesus? What will it cost me if I turn down that job offer because I know that as soon as I take it, every part of my morality will be tested every single day? What about, what about that, what's it going to cost me to kill my own pride and simply just stay silent in certain things that I see on Facebook, on Instagram? Just stay silent. Students, what's it going to cost you to choose Jesus over those kids you think are super cool, but you know they're not doing the right things? What's it going to cost you? Are you ready to choose him over everything else? It's scary. It's a scary, it's a scary question to ask ourselves. And listen, I, it's scary to die to ourselves. 
but it's been, it's been required of us to every day die to ourselves because, listen to me, that is the only way that you can live for Jesus. That dying to yourself every day is the only way that you will live for Jesus. The last section, verses 27 through 31, we're going to look at the soldiers. This is a tough one. Um, this is tough. <clears throat> the things that I want to point out within um, this part of the narrative um, are simply that uh, when it says soldiers, I just want you to remember that that's plural. And that it's not just a two or three thugs or bullies that have Jesus in a room somewhere. That the Bible says that it's the whole battalion. Guys, we're looking at about 600 men against one. Against one in this scenario. Not to mention that one has, before this happens, has been scourged and beaten to an inch of his life and now stands in front of 600 angry, mob mentality-focused men who have been bred to be against him. The scene that follows looks like this, is that he's stripped naked of his robe. Has anybody else ever had that like recurring nightmare of walking into school or work completely naked? Just me? Great. That's super awkward now. Um, but, but isn't that like everyone's worst fear? Maybe not, but like that, that would be terrifying. But here our Savior stands in front of 600 men, completely naked, completely vulnerable. They then take an old Roman guard robe that had probably gone from the, the red or maroon into more of a dark pink. They put it on his body to signify a mocking royal robe. They then take some, some thorns and fashion them into a circle-ish, force it down on his head. They grab a reed, put it in his right hand as though it is a royal scepter. And then just to add insult to injury, they bow before him and hail him king of the Jews. <clears throat> like the irony in all of this is unfathomable. Like this is cruelty and mockery at its very worst. And it's happening to our king. I, I think if we were to look at our culture today, though, the same mockery happens to him even now. Sometimes it happens to us as believers, even now. Like this is the world that you and I are living in, that our kids are growing up in, one where mockery of Jesus is seen every single day. I mean, guys, I, 
it's so, we're so quick. Like I see it all the time. Just as soon as somebody doesn't agree with something that we say or something we do or something we believe in, like, man, this is where social media just wears me out because like you see it all the time. As soon as a decision is made or somebody makes a statement and somebody else doesn't agree, we just jump on. Like, it's all about what I want. It's what I think is right. I don't care what you have to say. I'm just going to jump on you like 600 angry men on Jesus. And there's mockery and there's cruelty and there's insults. And there's just this barrage of negativity that happens. I think we've got to be so careful on social media. Kids, if you're on Instagram, like, be careful. Be careful. Adults, if you're on Facebook, watch yourselves. Don't fall into the mob mentality of mockery. And look, I'm not just talking about things that are anti-Christian. I mean just things in general, things you don't agree with, things that you're super prideful in. Like, just don't fall victim to it. I think we have to be so careful within the digital realm of how we handle ourselves. So Spurgeon, in reference to these particular texts, said this, and I think it's so helpful, that, that when we think about the mockery of Jesus happening into the world, what if, what if instead of joining with, what if we took this approach right here? He says, oh, that we were half as inventive in devising honor for our king as these soldiers were in planning his dishonor. What if we were half half as inventive as these guys were, in showing him honor every single day. He says, let us render to Christ the real homage that these men pretended to offer. Let us crown him Lord of all, in the truest loyalty, bow the knee, and hail him the king. Like, what if that was your mantra every day? Instead of being inventive on how I'm going to throw insults at people, what if I'm simply even more inventive on how I show Jesus is king in everything I do today? Like, what if that's how we woke up every morning, church? And we weren't worried about these other things. We simply said, man, today he's the king, and I'm going to do everything I can to make that known to everybody around me. Like, that, for me, that's, that's where I get with these passages it's, this, it's what Pilate asked the crowd. Then what shall I do with Jesus called the Christ? I mean, look, in closing, this is what I'm going to tell you is that while Jesus may be the one on trial in the narrative, as the readers, we have to look at this and say, no, 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 no. This isn't Jesus just on trial. That even in his silence, he is 100% completely in control of everything that is happening in this story. Amen? Like, he is 100% in control. That even in his silence, he's got this. That it's Caiaphas that's on trial. That it's Pilate that's on trial. It's the soldiers that are on trial. As the readers, guys, it's us. We're the ones on trial. With the echo of Pilate's words, then what shall I do with Jesus? Ringing in our ears. It's got to. It's got to constantly be in our minds. Then what will I do with Jesus in this situation? Then what will I do with Jesus in that situation? What will I do with Jesus today? Let me tell you what he's done for you. You guys thought I was going to skip over Barabbas, didn't you? 
Barabbas, you've got this man who is condemned. He's bad, he's sinful, he's condemned, he's been sentenced to death. And then you've got Jesus over here. Jesus, innocent, completely pure, has done nothing wrong. Nothing but lies spewed out against him. And in that story, we see the crowd scream for Jesus. And Jesus willingly taking on the death that Barabbas deserved. An innocent man dying for the guilty. This is what Jesus has done for you and I. The Bible would say that we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. And that the consequence, the payment for that sin is death. But it's a death that Jesus took in our place. That we might experience newness of life. So if if you're here today and you don't know this love that Jesus has for you, I'm just going to beg you, don't let another day go by. Know that this innocent man that we are talking about that is currently, that was on trial in these days, like he died for you. That you do not have to walk around with the guilt of your sins any longer. That his freedom and his grace is available to you. That if you are a believer and you've been walking with Jesus, my encouragement to you is to choose him every single day. Ask yourself that question, then what shall I do? What shall we do with Jesus today? Because here's the deal, is that when we choose him in all things, the ride of this life is going to be so much more enjoyable and worth it. So I know you guys are like, what happened? I thought you were on a roller coaster at one point in time. I was on a roller coaster. Remember that story? Um, So we're at the top of this hill, right? And all I can do is look to the left. Remember I showed you the picture of I-30? And there's this spiral staircase going down about 100 feet. And all I'm thinking in my brain is, Lord, please do not make me walk down that. I will do any. I would splash land before I would walk down that spiral staircase. Because Gabe does not do heights. And you know this, Lord, so don't make me do this. And so I think we were up there almost 30 minutes. No hat, bald guy, like I'm starting to bake. (laughs) And about that time, this man starts to walk up this spiral staircase towards us. And I'm like, praise the Lord. Hopefully he's not up here just to let us out so we can go down it with him. So he gets up there and he looks at me and he goes, sir, I just want you to know everything's just fine. Everything checks out. Everything's working perfectly on your roller coaster. That's great. Can we go? (laughs) And he's like, yes, sir, we'll be going here in just a minute. So he gets behind the roller coaster And they put that big thing in neutral, and he just starts pushing. And he pushes us down the hill through the loops. We get back to the thing. Listen to me. I've never been so glad to be back at home. Like, it, like the, the parking spot, I was like, we made it. The ride was amazing. After it may have been even more, The second half of the ride may have been even more enjoyable than the first half. But, but here's why I tell you that is the guy reassured me that everything was going to be fine. And I said this to the first group, and I'll say it to you. 
can we just take the word, take the man at his word? Like, take this word that comes from the Lord, and let's trust it. Let's trust it that everything about him is true. Let's trust it that the rest of our life is joy-filled. It's more joy-filled than how we started, that the uphill climb results in belief and trust in Jesus as our Savior so that we can experience the thrill of the rest of the ride if we'll simply take the man at his word. And then we experience this beautiful bliss at the end when we are welcomed back home. This is the challenge for you and I. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the time that we've gotten to spend together in it this morning. And Father, I pray that um, as we continue to go through our lives day in and day out, that we would ask ourselves that question. What today, Lord, will we do with Jesus? God, may we run to your word often for encouragement. May we run to your word often to challenge ourselves to choose him above everything else because he's worth it. Continue to remind ourselves and remind us, Lord, that he died for us simply out of love for us. Let that be the song of our day each and every day. We pray all these things in his beautiful name. Amen.